This is the Cafe Solar Podcast. Zion Lutheran Church class on basically what is the church? Church study part one. Y'all ready for this? Oh yeah. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Merciful Father, we thank you for bringing us safely to this day. We ask for the presence and blessing of the Holy Spirit as we meditate upon your word, that it may assure us of our salvation. It comes only in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Can anyone tell me who these two dudes are on the handout? Lutherans. They're Lutherans, yes. <laughs> the top guy is John Tesian. John Tesian was the president of St. Louis Seminary in the late 60s into the 70s, and he was the guy who basically led Seminex. Right when the St. Louis Seminary had the walkout in 1974, he was the guy that led them. So he was like the leader of seminary in exile. I can't remember what they ended up being. What was, what was their group called, Pastor Daniels? The seminary? U E A L E C? What were they called? Remember? Uh, is it the A-C-E-L-C? Is that what they're called? Yeah. Well, I'm kidding. That's a good group. No. Um, what were, I can't remember. It, it's this group that left in 1974. They're the ones left the Missouri Senate. In 1988, they joined with the Lutheran Church of America and the American Lutheran Church and created the E-L-C-A. So John Teachin was like their theologian. The guy on the bottom is who John Teachin opposed who he ran against in 1973 for president, J.A.O. Preuss, right? J.O. Preuss was a, a professor at, well, and president at Springfield Seminary. Then he became president of the Missouri Senate in 1969. Um, his brother, Robert Preuss, was actually a professor at St. Louis during Seminex. He would later go on to Fort Wayne uh, a few years later become a professor at Fort Wayne, president of Fort Wayne. Robert Preuss died in the mid-90s, kind of ostracized by our, our church body for his uh, sound theology. Uh, J.O. Preuss, both of them very um, prominent guys. You can read a lot about this, but this is, a lot of people still go back to this in the Missouri Senate, is one of our darkest moments, is 1974, seminary in exile, the Seminex movement. And we look at what happens to the church, all these things that happen, we say, well, this defines the church. But if you look over at this picture, which is a beautiful picture, sorry about it, anyway, just, you see heaven on earth. Heaven is above. You see Christ seated, seated on his throne, the apostles surrounding him, the Father above him, and the Holy Spirit beneath him there. And on the bottom, we see the divine service, the altar, upon which his body and blood are for us. The church is not defined by men and men's sin. The church is defined by God's word. The church is a divine thing, not a man-made thing. When we look at the first question here on our sheet, is the church a man-made institution or a divinely created one? Can someone go to Matthew 28, 16 to 20? Someone else go to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And then someone else, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. If you want to read about the Seminex issue, there's a lot of good books on it, but the best book about Seminex is called Anatomy of an Explosion. 
My doctor, Kurt Marquardt. Dr. Marquardt was a professor at the Lutheran Seminary in Adelaide, Australia. He was there when Herman Sasse was there, really smart guy. 1975, he was called to the seminary in Springfield, which quickly moved to Fort Wayne. Dr. Marquardt was not around this area during the Seminex, so his view of it is very objective. He doesn't say this side, this side, it's just this is what happened. Beautiful, right? And deep theology. It's good, good stuff. It's not a light read, so you can't just pick it up and go, oh, I'll read a page here, page there. It's one to really get into. Um, all the rest of them I've read, like Preuss of the Senate. Uh, what was the other one? Ah, two synods. They're all usually written by either an ELCA person or a very staunch Missouri Senate person, and it's usually pretty opinionated. That's a good writer. All right. Who's got Matthew 28, 16 and 24? Chris, go ahead. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ has the authority to hand over after his resurrection instead of condemning creation, which he has the right to do because of our sin. Instead, he creates the church, which forgives sins. He creates the church that goes out and baptizes and teaches all things that he has given, that we may treasure them. And lo, he is with us always into the ages of ages. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. It's one of my favorite passages on the church. Usually this is just used concerning gossip, but it's really a great passage for the institution of the church. Who's got it? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and father. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm among them, right? In my name, I'm among them. Not just where two or three or a group of people are gathered, it's where we are gathered in God's name, there is Jesus among us. And from that, so it's almost best to read Matthew 18 backwards. 15, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15. We start with this. We gather together in the name of Jesus. This is what unites us. And in this unity of Christ, what is the vocation of the church? To bind and loose sin, to forgive sin, to retain sin. And from that then comes into our life together. And our life together is a life of forgiveness. A life of forgiving each other. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Who's got this one? This is my favorite one for weddings. Got it. Luke, go ahead, my man. 21 to 33. The wedding one starts at 22, but it's stupid, so I like starting at 21. Submitting one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his and is himself his Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we always focus, and it's not a bad thing, on this pericope, on the relationship between man and wife, which is good. But what we have to focus on is it's primarily about the relationship between Christ and the church, his bride. That Christ absolves her, forgives her, and presents her with no spot or wrinkle. And what is the church's vocation? Is respecting Christ, subordinating ourselves to Christ. Christ is the one who is in charge, not us. We are the ones that are guided, not the ones guiding. And you see this happen a lot in churches where um, certain things take over. So let's go to the next slide. This is a question I have. What is the church? How do we usually define the church? How many of y'all try to define the church as a building? Anybody? Anybody to try it, right? What do we teach the church children, right? Here's the church. Here's, Here's the, the people. people open the door and yeah see all the people so even from a young age we we know and it's not a bad thing to relate to church to a building right but can the building become an idol sure yeah what did we see this last year in the news how a building was more important than the content inside the building it's the burning of notre dame right notre dame burns down it's a glorious place has anyone ever been to notre dame Beautiful place, right? I went one time. It's amazing. You, you can't even imagine. The ceilings are like 10 times higher. It's amazing how high, how large this place is. And it took them centuries to build it. But who are people worshiping? The building or Christ who comes in word and sacrament inside of it? They're worshiping the building, right? Anybody can appreciate a good edifice, you know? And that's what happens. So a lot of time we'll describe a church by the building, you know, what it looks like, where I went. What about the people? How many times do we describe church as people? Less often. What? Less often. Less often, but the problem <laughs> is, usually that's what upsets us at church. Why someone leaves a church or joins a church is, well, I don't like someone there or I like someone there. It always ends up being about a person there. Which isn't a bad thing. It, it's good to have people that you know and love. But you don't go to church because of the people, right? We don't go to church because the people in it are great. Because what happens when the people aren't great anymore? 
We go somewhere else. We leave, we go somewhere else, right? And that doesn't happen down here at all, does it? No. I don't think I've ever signed transfer documents or accepted people into membership. <laughs> but it happens. You get mad at someone else, you get mad at the pastor, or you like one pastor, but he takes a call, the next guy, eh, not so much. It happens, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The denomination, how many of y'all, when you describe the church, automatically go to Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? Right? I mean, it's not a bad thing to say we're Missouri Synod, um, but are we the only ones going to heaven? The Missouri Synod? No. Hopefully not. <laughs> The whole Missouri Synod may not even go. Who knows? <laughs> right? The reality is it's not my faithfulness to a denomination that saves me, but Christ and the yeah, forgiveness of my sins. I want your children to study. I've said that, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's me. That's yeah, I want them to stay in Missouri Synod, but more importantly, I want them to stay faithful to the Word and the Confessions. I've said many times, I'm not faithful to the Missouri Synod at all. I'm faithful to Scripture and the Confessions. The day the Missouri Synod decides this isn't important anymore, we're going to go in a different direction. I have no desire to be a Missouri Synod pastor. Well, if my church starts changing teaching, mm -hmm. right? That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So the denomination is there, and we pray that it stays faithful to the things that are guiding it—the Scriptures, and at least as Lutherans, the Book of Common. Right? That's what we pray. Uh, one of my friends, Hans Feeney, even get, is going to Wales in a month or so to teach a bunch of Reformed Baptists long gospel. What about traditions or changes? Do we ever use that type of vocabulary to describe the church? Sure. The traditions we have or changes that have happened. I go to a church that's progressive, that's changing, that's doing new things, or I go to a church that's strict and never changes. Right? Worship style, preaching style. How we do things, right? Um, it's always interesting. The works. Have you ever been trying to describe the church by what the church does in the community? I've seen it. Or what the church does outside of actual church? Because church really is only an hour or two. Right? Everything else is in addition to church. They will know we are Christians by our love. Yeah, by our love, right? Yeah. <laughs> by our love, they will know. Yeah. <laughs> But the reality is, works are good, they're a fantastic thing, but they don't define the church. Do atheist organizations or Muslim organizations or Jewish organizations or government organizations do good works as well? Sure. Yeah, of course they can, and they do. So good works are not a specific Christian thing, right? In Article 18 of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon makes this point that there's a difference between civil righteousness and Christian righteousness. That righteousness that anybody can do, right? And the righteousness of Christ, of faith. What about the feelings? Anyone ever talk about church and the feeling you get from it? Oh, yeah. You know, how you feel when you walk out, how you feel going to it. Are you happy going to it? Are you happy leaving it? Are you angry going to it? Angry leaving it? How are you feeling about it? And the activities. And activities, like I said, are not a bad thing, but they are... Subjective. Ask a lot of people how was church today. Yeah. And they'll give you an emotional response. It's was... usually an emotion-driven response. Yeah. Right? Next slide, please, my love. This is a picture of Christ giving the keys to St. Peter. Huh? What? Very Catholic. Supposedly it's St. Peter's Basilica in the background. 
but I don't know, I couldn't find when this was drawn. So if it's before the 1500s, then it's definitely not St. Peter's Basilica, because St. Peter's wasn't built until... After Luther. Or after Luther, right? That's one of the reasons the indulgences happened, was they were raising funds for St. Peter's Basilica. But you have Jesus giving the keys to St. Peter in Matthew 16. Go to the next slide so we can read that. Oh no, this is Augsburg Confession, Article 7, my bad. Matthew 16 is next. No, 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 stay there, stay there, stay there. When we look at... The Lutheran Reformation, don't ever call it the Protestant Reformation, because we're different than the Reformed. We're different than Calvinists. We're different than Arminians. We're not the exact same as Jean Calvin or uh, Karl Stoddard's wing. We have a Lutheran Reformation. In the Lutheran Reformation, in 1529 leading into 1530, what was the biggest threat against Europe? The Turks. So Charles V, who basically rules almost all of Western Europe except for France and the E, England. England, right? He didn't rule these two, but everything else. He ruled Spain. He basically ruled Italy. He's at the Holy Roman Empire. He is the most powerful man in the West. How did this fall? There we go. He's the most powerful man in the West, but the Turk is huge. Is it slowly it's going slowly down? Going it's down. like a game. Let's see how far it goes before he notices. He's the, the Turk is, is a powerhouse, and he realizes his empire, the Holy Roman Empire, is divided between the, the Lutherans and other uh, Protestants, and the Roman Catholics. So he's like, okay, I've got to get everybody on the same page a little here. So he calls for a diet in Augsburg, Germany, where the Lutherans can present their confession. So Philip Melanchthon authors it. Luther was not there because Luther would have been killed. Luther's at a place called Coburg, which is still within electoral Saxony area. So he's there, but he oversaw and helped with the writing of the Augsburg Confession. Melanchthon and the princes presented it, right? George of uh, Brandenburg, right? He's the famous one who said, I'd rather give up my head than give up the word of God. So Melanchthon presents these, Article 7 and Article 8 are on the church. Article 7 is the church and who she is. And if you look at your book of Concord, in the Augsburg Confession, there's a German version and a Latin version. <coughs> Latin is the scholarly language, German was the language of the people, so they wrote it in both. There's also taught among us that one holy Christian, or Catholic, if you want to say that church, will be and remain forever. This is, and this is the definition, this is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is preached, and its purity and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. For it is sufficient for the true unity of the Christian church that the gospel be preached in conformity with a pure understanding of it, and the sacraments be administered in accordance with the divine word. It is not necessary for the true unity of the Christian church that ceremonies instituted by men should be observed uniformly in all places. It is, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 4, 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the church is the assembly of all believers amongst whom the gospel is purely preached and the sacraments are administered in accordance with the gospel. Article 8 then was in response to them saying, what about sinful people? Because there was this movement in the early church called Donatism. Anyone ever heard of this? Donatism? Donatism? It's not about Donna, but Donatism. Early days, right, you would have persecutions come. 
And under persecution, some bishops, some priests would give up. They, they'd give in it, and you know what I mean? They'd say, no, I won't do this. I, I won't preach the gospel. I won't do the work. I, I recant what I believe. And then when the persecution's gone, they say, I was joking. I'm back, ready to preach, teach, and administer, you know? So one guy said, those priests, their sacraments are invalid. They can never preach or do it because they themselves are sinful men. Right? They gave up during the persecution. Their sacraments don't work. Augustine was the main guy that wrote against this. And Luther picked up. Luther has a lovely document called Concerning Rebaptism. Because a lot of Lutherans were like, if Rome is this corrupt, shouldn't we get baptized? Because obviously their baptism wasn't real. They're all sinful men. Luther said, no, baptism is not valid because of the man that does it or his holiness. Baptism is valid because of the word combined with the water. The word of God makes it a valid baptism, not the man who does it. So Article 8 is on how in the church you will have corruption. You will see sinful men. We have the parable from Matthew 13, right? Weed and the wheat, right? He goes and sows the wheat, but then during the night, who comes? Satan comes and sows weeds in with the wheat, and they grow. And then it's like, should we pull the weeds out? And the guy says, no, don't do it, because you could destroy the wheat too. Instead, leave it for the last day when the angels will come and separate. That's Article 8. We're going to deal with that a little bit next week and the week after. Next slide, please. This should be Matthew 16. Yes, Matthew 16. Let's go to it. Matthew 16. Uh, let's go to it in our actual Bible. So that's small. I didn't realize I did it that small. My apologies there. Uh, Matthew 16. <laughs> Jesus asking his apostles, who do you think I am? I don't know who to answer correctly. Huh? Oh, well, I can read it now. How do you do that? Oh, that's right. I'm not good. I handwrite the sermon stuff. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you use on earth shall be loose in heaven. Why does the church exist? This is question two. Why does the church exist? Why are we here? What's the point? Well, we just read it, right? Bind and loose sin. That's why the church exists. Exactly. To do forgiveness, right? To preach the law and the gospel. To reveal sin and to forgive sin. This is the point of the church's existence. To create saints. Next slide. I think it's from Luther's small call. Did you skip one or is that it? That's it. The means of grace. Has anyone ever seen this portrait? This drawing of the, the means of grace? Who does it? Is it Ad Truchum that does it? Ad Truchum. Does anyone know what Ad Truchum is? Beautiful artwork, beautiful jewelry. They have a nice insignia ring that's a Luther rose. I think there's a guy celebrating 10 years in the ministry this year. 
And he really, really likes that Luther Rosen signet ring. Um, I don't know who it is, but I heard he really likes it. Really, you know, humble guy who knows how to do things subtly. This is from the small card article, right? Luther wrote this in 1537. He presented it to all of the Lutheran people, all the evangelish, Catholic, evangelical Catholics. He presented this to them with the hope that his writing, the small called articles, would be presented at the Roman Catholic Council, which eventually became the Council of Trent. Trent didn't happen in 1537. Trent happened in... 1545 is when Trent started. So Luther died the next year. But they didn't use this at Trent because Philip Melanchthon said it's too intense. Even though Melanchthon's treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, he called the Pope the Antichrist. You know, Melanchthon said this is too, too intense. We can't use this in Rome. So they ended up using some of Melanchthon's stuff. And then who, anyone ever read Examination on the Council of Trent? Anyone seen this document? Four volumes, you, you've, do you have it, Kenner? No, I, I, I just showed you the recorded page cover, so I used the third right and then buy it. I looked at it, I've got my own copy of the Council of Trent. I love it, I love it. I'm here. Yeah, it's okay, we forgive you, Ken. We forgive you. But no, it's a beautiful, the Council of Trent is, for the longest time, for hundreds of years, was the, this is what defines Roman Catholicism, and the reaction to it was a guy named Martin Chemnitz. Uh, who was a disciple of Luther and Melanchthon, who wrote the examination on uh, Four volumes said it used to be real pretty colors like pink and green and yellow. Now it's all black because we're all serious about stuff. Um, but great works, great volume of stuff. Um, decided, small Paul articles. Luther goes through things like repentance, and the mass, and then he gets to the means of grace, or he titles it the gospel. We shall now return to the gospel which offers counsel and help against sin in more than one way. For God is surpassingly rich in his grace. <coughs> First, through the spoken word by which the forgiveness of sin, the particular function of the gospel is preached to the whole world. Second, through baptism. Third, through the holy sacrament of the altar. Fourth, through the power of the keys. And finally, through the mutual conversation and consolation of brethren. This is why the church exists. To hand out the gospel, to baptize, to forgive sins, to distribute. Jeff. Um, so not to not to get you off your topic, but backing up. Um, I've never Matthew done 16, um, 18 and 19. Why is it so clear to us and a lot of other denominations that obviously that Jesus is talking about the church? as a whole, not the institution of popery. Yeah, not the like why, why is it? And then I, I was listening to something on uh, Sirius on the Catholic channel the other day. I don't know why I was listening to it, but they, they, they point to that and they just, to them, it's clear as a bell. Well, this is obviously he's chosen a succession of men to rule over the church. What, how, I mean, why did they, why does that stumbling block? I can give you an answer of I don't know absolutely why, because I haven't done, at least I will confess, thorough research on the institution creation and sustaining of the papacy. Um, what's interesting with this Matthew 16, 16 to 18, says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The words there 
in in the original uh, come on Matthew 16 it's this it's little, not well, the, the words what's the what's the Greek in it like, that's what's, what I'm looking I'm it's little rock and big rock He's, yeah it's a little rock and big rock basically because yeah. what's Peter's name is Kepha He's right. the little rock, and on the big rock of his confession is exactly. where his church will be built. So, you know, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, my father. And I say to you, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, build my church. Petros, Petra. Petra is a feminine. Petros is masculine. So upon this rock, feminine rock, I will build my church. So that's the interesting part, too. Why they see a feminine verb, Petra, Translated into a masculine for the Pope. Pastor Anderson and I were joking the other day. I said, my favorite Pope is the Avignon one. Anyone know who the Avignon Pope is? Have you read history? I've been there. They, where they split off, right? Yeah, it, at one point there were three. Has anyone heard this story? At one point there were three Popes at the same time. There was a Pope elected in Rome, right? And then the French didn't like him. So the French went back to Avignon. I imagine it's kind of like a Monty Python type thing, you know, they went with their <laughs> English connickets. So they went back to Avignon and they elected the Pope, but then a bunch of people were like, well, we don't like the Roman Pope. We don't like the Avignon Pope. We're going to elect the Roman Pope. <laughs> so then you have a third Pope in the mix. And I always feel bad for the third Pope because he doesn't get a title, Avignon or Rome. He just is the third Pope. So you know he's over there going, come on, guys. And then they said, never mind, get away with all of them, and then elected a new guy. Um, there's only been two times in history that a pope has resigned, right? In the 13th century, and then recently with Benedict, right? Benedict resigned uh, the papacy. Oh, I hear you, dude. Did they yeah. Him? Huh? Did they resign him? Yeah, he's technically Pope Emeritus. Have you ever seen that Saturday Night Live bit, the Pope Emeritus? Have you ever seen that one? Christoph Waltz plays Pope Benedict. It's pretty funny. Um, but the thing is, with, with the papacy, they, they make this separation, and this is the problem with the evangelical. The gifts of the keys are given to men in the context of the church. St. Cyprian of Carthage, who was a bishop of Carthage in the third century, said there are, there are two things necessary for a church, the bishop and those who hear it. And the bishop comes in the context of the means of grace. He's the one that hands them over. He's the one that baptizes. He's the one that preaches. He's the one that does the uh, absolution. He's the one that does the communion and the people to receive. That's the church. And the Lutherans never denied Cyprian's thought on this. We mustn't go too extreme in one direction that it's to one man, meaning Peter, and then to whomever is after him. But we shouldn't go to the other end that it's just to the church and then the church gets to the side. And that gets more into this everyone a minister type thing. You know, like everybody has the keys, and then we bestow the keys on the pastor. Well, that's, where is that? Luther speaks this way, but he does it in emergency situations. Meaning in an emergency, you baptize. In an emergency, you do this. Article 14, what does it say? If anyone's got that book of Concord. Thanks, Jeff. Getting me off topic. <laughs> Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession is Bob Ministry. Article 14. Our churches teach that nobody should publicly preach in the church or minister sacraments unless he is regularly called. That's the German. The Latin it is also it is taught among us that nobody should publicly teach or preach or administer the sacraments in the church without a regular call. 
a right call. After that comes ecclesiastical rights when it talks about good order in the church. One of the problems we have in the Missouri Senate is, is we have this assumption that all of us are given the keys and then for good order's sake, we bestow the keys upon the pastor who then exercises them publicly. Right? Who, which denomination believes this in the Lutheran Church? Not us, at least in writing. Wisconsin Senate does. This is called the Wauwatosa Convention. That'll be, we'll have to cover that. Yes, Debbie. Walter in his church and ministry tries to, but the thing we have to be aware of with Walter's translation, President Harrison does a much better job of his translation. Mueller, who translated the Walter earlier, the blue, dark blue copies, was a pretty much a Wisconsin Senate type guy. Is everybody has this. So he took that theology and translated Walter into English. Harrison was accused of sacerdotalism by guys like, by a few men in our church body that like calling others out because he translated in a way that was more faithful to the German, more faithful to the original thought of the Missouri Senate, at least. Um, has anyone read the new ones Harrison did, the reader's edition of Long Gospel or Church and Ministry? If you don't own these books, get the versions Harrison came out with because they're a lot more faithful to the original translation. Walther does kind of borderline on everybody a minister, especially when he's going after a guy named Martin Stephan. Has anyone heard of Martin Stephan? Martin Stephan is the guy that brought all the Saxons over from Germany and start, tried getting a church body going. Um, has anyone read about the Stephan family still suing the Missouri Senate? Has anyone read this? The Stephan family is still trying to, because for blast, for uh, slandering him and everything? Could be. I wasn't alive 150 years ago, so it could have happened for all I know. But the thing is, when it comes to the keys, I'm bound to do something. I'm bound to forgive. I'm bound to bind. Right? Pastor Daniels is bound to forgive. He's bound to bind. Are you all bound to that? No, because you don't act like it. Right? Me, Chris Hall, does not act this way. Chris Hall holds grudges. Chris Hall remembers people who did something to him. Chris Hall does bad stuff. But the ministry does not. Right? And I'm placed into it. Herman Sasa, and, his, and we're going to use a lot of him as we go through these next few weeks, in his We Confess Anthology. Does anyone own this, the We Confess Anthology? What do you think of it, Ernie? Very good. <laughs> That's a good answer, Ernie. <laughs> Have you read how Sasa talks about an apostolic succession of doctrine? So that's really what we hold to, is an apostolic succession of doctrine, not of men, but of doctrine. Um, and in that context of doctrine, who confesses it? Men. Not just male, men and women who confess it, but the office of the ministry is the one that publicly exercises that. Yes, Mother? So uh, a pastor who uh, doesn't have a call in the that's a, that's a big discussion that's going on now. Because if you go back 50, 60 years, did pastors retire a lot? They just died. So they were just pastors, then they died. Now you have a lot of guys just retired. You know? And it happens because we've adopted more of a corporate approach to the pastoral office rather than a biblical approach to it. So you have the problem of guys retiring 
And then it's like, well, do they have the keys? Do they not? You know, if a guy doesn't have a call. Luther makes this point in Galatians 1. Did Pastor, who's in Pastor Daniel's Tuesday morning study? Remember, did he go through with you the dangers of a man who does the work without a call? Did he go through that from Luther's Galatians lectures? A man who does not have a call, even if he are to do something right, does nothing but destruction. Because he's not called to do something. Right? He's not called to that people by God. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's why we have this. We have to decide what is it. Does he get a temp? Now, the answer is well, he's called temporarily to that place for that one time. Therefore, he's called to do this work in that specific moment. Same as if you baptize someone in emergency, you're called to do that. In that moment, God has ordained you to do this work. Yeah, it was a retirement that did it. Yeah. Or like the one Sunday where a Thai guy split his thumb open and my dad preached the late service. Yes. He was temporarily called to do that work for the church. Not for me, but for the church. What about professors? Well, and that's a big debate too. It used to be at the seminaries, professors could not do the sacrament or do things like that. Now they do. I don't really know what type of debate they had on that. That's going to be week five is the call. We're going to read some stuff by Robert Croyce as well. So it's fun times. You shouldn't argue, Tay. Discussion. I still call Pastor Tyler. And you should, yeah. Thank you. He doesn't know that. Michael. I was told we were told. Yes. As long as he's called Pastor, he's doing it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. We're Reverend something, Reverend Pastor, Reverend Doctor, Reverend Professor, something like that. <sighs> if they're not it's, your pastor, yeah. do you call them Reverend? When they're not my pastor? Like if... Yeah. Well, I only have two. I have two pastors, Father Taos and Father Daniels. Right. I, they're my... The other ones I call by their first name usually. But that's me. <laughs> I call them brother. Hmm? Yeah, he's exercising his uh, call in certain places. <coughs> See, this is, and we'll discuss this when we get to the call. Not that I wanted to, to say, no, I don't want to answer. It's just, as we read some stuff by Robert Preuss, and that gives me a couple more weeks to read some more, too, and have some good answers. Well, I'm glad we're talking about it. It's fun. All right, next slide, please. I love it. What time is it? 20. All right, cool. Ministry. I mentioned this on Wednesday night a little bit. And I'm going to talk about it now. John 20, verse 19 to 23. When do we read this in the lectionary? Starts with a Q. Ends with quasimodogenity. Quasimodogenity Sunday. The Sunday after Easter, right? It's Doubting Thomas Sunday. But we usually focus on Doubting Thomas, which isn't bad. He's a good guy. But this is there too. John 20, 19 through 23. This is one of the heaviest, remember Luther quotes this in the small catechism concerning the keys. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why? Why are they scared of the Jews? Well, they kind of just killed Jesus, so they're coming after them now, right? Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, I hate you. No, he does that in Mark. You ever read Mark? I love Mark. He's like, what's wrong with you? John's a little more peaceful. Peace be with you. And he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the institution of the ministry. The institution of the office, the institution of the church. For the apostles are not mandated to go and just preach willy-nilly. They're mandated and instituted to go and preach and to forgive and to retain the sins of sinners who are gathered by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Next slide. This is a quote from Luther in his sermons on John 20. This came out, this volume 69, this volume only came out a couple of years ago. So up until a few years ago, unless you knew German, you couldn't read this sermon by Luther. And I wish it would have been translated earlier, but a lot of great guys like Dr. Mays from uh, Fort Wayne, Dr. Brown, uh, Dr. Corzine from River Forest, great guys worked on this project to get as many Luther works translated. And this is a great one, his sermons on John. He says, from this, meaning John 20, 19 to 23, it is clear and apparent that, as I have said, one can have the Holy Spirit in two ways, for his person and for his office. For our person, the Holy Spirit is not with us always, because we often allow the evil spirit to ride us, and we fall away from God. As David did when he took Uriah's wife from him, and when he had the people counted, as the text clearly says, Satan stood against Israel and inspired David to have the people counted. 1 Chronicles 21. But for our office, if we preach the gospel, baptize, absolve, and administer the sacrament according to the Holy Spirit's institution and grace, the Holy Spirit is with us always. So when we sin, the Holy Spirit is farther from us or not further with from us? us? The Holy Spirit is further from us as we sin and continue to sin. And when we confess and repent and are absolved. And Chris makes the point, when we sin, the Spirit is far from us. But what does the Holy Spirit do? He calls us back, right? I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. The Holy Spirit calls me, gathers me back to church to be forgiven. There are lots of people who don't think that. They no, don't. They this don't. Is, this, I'll go back again real quick. This quote by Luther, if I did not tell you right now Luther said it, how many of you would agree with me? Would say that when I sin, the Holy Spirit is not with me. Because God's always with me, right? right? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, but what is that attached to? The means of the grace. The means of grace, right. Exactly. You don't stop being a Christian. Exactly, right? And we are returned to it by the Holy Spirit. But what do we do outside of that? We run away from it, right? God is not. And this was asked by an Eastern Orthodox priest one time. A guy asked him, why should I come to church since God is everywhere? He said, well, the atmosphere is filled with moisture. But when you want to drink of water, do you just go... No, you go to the fountain. Is God everywhere? Of course He is. But is God everywhere in His mercy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And at the seminaries, you have the fonts there. I'd love to move our font out 
right, right where the narthex is, right before you walk into, not in the church because there's no room there. I don't think we could put it like where the handbells tables are. It'd be too crowded. But if you put it right out there, it's this beautiful symbolism that how am I, I'm being brought back into it. Jesus doesn't let us, this is what the means of grace are, is we, the ship is the church and we have leapt out of it. We have jumped out of it because of our sin. We know how to live. We know how to live a righteous life and love for our neighbor. Yet we abandon it. Instead of building our neighbor up, we tear them down. Instead of living a chase life, we live in lust. Instead of being patient, we get angry. Am I the only one that does this? Am I the only one? <laughs> and the reality is God does not abandon us, but <coughs> draws, us back. draws us back in yeah. that we may abide in our baptismal grace. Because we're not baptized all the time. We're baptized one. one baptism. And we abide and are brought back into that baptism in the means of grace. So we don't stop being a Christian. No. But we are, the Holy Spirit is separated. We're abiding from us. more and more in. I, I've mentioned this show I've watched a little bit called Evil. And I recommend it. I mean, I'm not recommending like everyone watch it, but to understand the intensity of the devil, the intensity of these things, and the fur. They don't want you in church. The devil does not want you here. The world outside of Christ does not want you here. Christ does. Ernie, you're going to say something. To that, that Luther quote, so you can have a situation, hypothetical, where a pastor who has a call, he himself is an unbeliever. So the Holy Spirit is with him. So when he steps up into the pulpit and if he faithfully preaches or faithfully administers the sacrament, even though the Holy Spirit is with him because he doesn't believe it, yeah. The Holy Spirit is with him insofar as he is executing the office. In the office, exactly, Ernie, exactly. The Holy Spirit is always with the office. The Holy Spirit never leaves the office of the Holy Ministry. Men come and go, do they not? One man is placed into the office, another one dies. One, And it goes on and on. So churches that don't believe in the office... They still say they have called pastors. Yeah. I felt called to be a pastor. Usually, it's just for good order's sake. What are they missing? If uh, you know, if they aren't, if they're not in an office, if they don't feel like they're in the office, they can't absolve sins. They no. won't. They won't absolve sins. Well, most churches don't absolve sins because there's no reason to. Because on the cross, you were just forgiven. And this is true. They on just the cross, remind you of yeah. that, and then you kind of forgive yourself. Yeah, and the thing is, well, no, I don't have to be forgiven because I was already forgiven. Well, then why isn't everybody going to heaven? Right? Why isn't it just, why Why do anything? Lord. I have a quick comment. So, Gunnar and I started watching that show, Evil. Uh -huh. I really like it, too, because the stuff we'll talk about from Sunday school and this and yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And especially for, you know, kids, they like to get into that stuff. And we had this conversation about how evil sometimes and it's portrayed in the show is this demon mm -hmm. type you know this is what you you know is portrayed is yeah in all these movies about these monsters and evil and things like that but in reality the devil is what it shows in the show too is this constant you know it shows it as a person behind him yeah and it's always in your ear of yeah. like whether it be so-and-so said this, like if I was behind this person here and just constantly saying whatever, no, 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 this bothering you. It could be something about lust or that person at work or 
yeah. whatever it is, constantly saying that into your ear that bothers you. Oh, exactly. And it's so true because it could be like somebody that I work with that drives me crazy and they're bringing it up constantly. Like, God, she annoys me so much when she does this. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I like that's what's interesting. So Gunnar and I have these debates afterwards. And it brings up some great conversation, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, it's... It's a good show, and why I don't show. think it'll be on the air much longer is because it makes the presence of evil a real thing. A real thing, yes. And that's why I don't think it'll have a second season. Allison and I watch it, and she's made the point. The aggressiveness yes. of evil, and that's the reality, is Christ is even more aggressive than that. Because yeah. he didn't wait for the devil to come to his domain. He came and took it to the devil. And that's why we're called and gathered to church. You know? All week long, we know our sin, we know our failure, we know our weaknesses. We've seen it. We felt the presence of evil. We felt these things. We know. And it's what you preach about in church. That's what we were talking about. Yeah. And I said, it's funny because think about the things that Pastor Holt talks about in church. Yeah. And every Sunday you talk about it, and that's what Gunnar had said. He goes... It's funny because it talks so similar to Pastor Hull's sermons. Yeah. You come in here I'm each week. I'm glad he's week. listening. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I don't know about it all the time, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? But it's the things that you talk about in there like, this week you've done this, you've done that, yeah. or you feel this way. And it's so funny because it's very similar to that in it. Yeah. Yes, there's that, you know, possession and the monsters and the horror movies that we may all like well, to but go But the see. evil just gets in there, and sometimes it can even come from a source... Like, I remember growing up, I had I had an elder, I was 13 years old, and he flat out told me, and this is, he looked at me, he said, are you interested in girls yet, Chris? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, don't ever do anything with them. Instead, God allows you to do other things on your own to appease your appetites. What? And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, what? So I go home, and I tell my dad, I tell my pastor, they're like, no! But this was an elder in the church. Of course he was wrong. He was no longer an elder after that, praise the Lord. But you know what I mean? It's like... You'll go blind. You have to, I tell you. You have to always be on your guard. And this gets to question three, and then we'll close. Why does God reveal himself to us in word and sacrament ministry? What comfort do we take in knowing that the church endures no matter how bad she may appear? Next slide. Senator John Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. How does the church appear? Dead. There's John's head on a platter. It looks like we're being destroyed. Next slide. What is the church? And this is just stuff I said, so no one needs to worry about it. But what do we have at late service today? Baptism. Oh, yeah. Devil being done. The heavens are open and something better than don't stop believing plays. Voices of the angels play. When did God create the church? When did God create the church in the garden? In the garden. The garden of Eden, the church existed. Adam was the first preacher. His pulpit was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the altar was the tree of life. But guess what Adam did? He failed. He failed to preach. At being a preacher, he let the serpent preach. I preached on this last year for Advent, not for Advent, Lent 1. It will cop it Sunday. But the reality is Christ will always place men in the office to preach teach, to administer the sacraments. The comfort we have is that it's not based on you or on a man. It's based on the Word of God. And that's the beauty of it. All right. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord that was counted upon you, grant you peace. Amen. God bless y'all. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, not on any man. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this Bible study. For more from Christopher Hogan and Cafe Sola, go to cafesola.com.